Please open in your Bibles to Psalm 69. If you're using one of the Bibles that uh, kids we've given you or you got off the back table, that begins on page 482 on the bottom there, the large number 69. We'll start reading that in a few minutes, but as we begin, I want you to uh, think about if you were to choose just a few words to describe God's people, just to kind of summarize who God's people are, kind of from beginning to end, what words would you choose? I think we'd have to start off with the word grace, right? Because God's people would not exist without grace. Right? From the very beginning of the Bible, it's a story of grace. Even in the garden, God showed Adam and Eve a kind of favor that they didn't necessarily deserve in speaking to them and commanding them. We see God's grace in their sin, that he clothed them with animal skins and he gave them promises about a a savior who would come through the seed of the woman. And of course, we see God's grace in his gracious call to Abraham and his graciously sustaining his people through the Old Testament and bringing Christ and bringing people to faith in Christ. So God's grace marks God's people. We might also think of the word rebellion, because when you look at the scope of God's people in the Old Testament especially, we see them marked by repeated rebellions and God's repeated grace. Even as we think of ourselves as God's people, we think of ourselves first as those who rebelled against God and had to be saved by God. So we might say rebellion is a marker of God's people, although one that we've turned away from and been saved from. But there's at least one more word I think that we should include. If we're talking about the grand scope of God's people, we should say that God's people are a persecuted people. Again, think of the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 4. Faithful Abel is persecuted by his brother Cain, right? He's murdered by Cain. We see Noah persecuted by those who surrounded him. We see Abraham harassed by the the little fiefdoms of, of the land of Canaan. We see Israel enslaved to Egypt. We see Egypt persecuted by Assyria and Babylon. I mean, Israel persecuted by Assyria and Babylon later in their history. And of course, we see Christ persecuted, right? Falsely accused and killed by his brothers in Israel. If we look at the history of the church, Christ's people, we see another history of persecution from their earliest days. We can read about some of those in the book of Acts. We can trace persecutions through the, the Roman emperors that followed. And even as we go through modern times, we get into the period of the Reformation and we find persecution. And there we find persecution of Christians by other Christians, right? If you read the history of of early modern England, it's just one group of Christians gaining power and persecuting others and, and back and forth. And we can recount stories of the present day of Christians suffering persecution. Now, it's especially important for us here living in Houston, Texas, in a place where there are lots of churches, to recall this third descriptor. That if we're going to describe God's people, we have to say they're persecuted. That's the normal state of God's people. If we were to judge by our own experience of being God's people, we might conclude that to be God's people is to be powerful and prosperous, right? That's the way a lot of, a lot of us have experienced life in the world. We've, we've, we've received a lot of blessings from the place where we live, and we really haven't received much in the way of opposition 
Although some of us may have. So we, we should thank God for these blessings. I don't mean in any way to, to say we should sort of resent our plight as blessed or, or to sort of grumble that we haven't had it harder. We should know we should thank God that we live in a place that's we're free to worship and assemble and to speak freely about our faith. Those are, those are blessings. I also don't call this to mind in order to kind of make you feel guilty or to, or to predict, like persecution is definitely coming. This isn't a cultural commentary. I'm not authorized or don't have the authority to speak about what's going to happen. But, but we should understand that persecution is normal and we should prepare for it. And I think that Psalm 69 helps us to do that because Psalm 69 is the prayer of a man severely persecuted. David, as he prays, prays from this place of great persecution. And so as we look at David's prayer, we are taught to live as a persecuted people. So this morning to walk through this psalm, we're going to look at it under three main sections. We'll first see two dangers of persecution, then two prayers of the persecuted, and finally, the end of the persecuted. So we'll see the first point in verses 1 through 12, the two dangers of, the per- of persecution. Then the second point, two prayers of the persecuted in verses 13 through 29. I'm sorry, 19 through 29. No, that's wrong. 13 through 29. And then finally, the last six verses are the end of the persecuted, where the persecuted end up. So let's begin reading these first 12 verses on page 482 of the Bibles provided, Psalm 69, verse 1. David prays, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters. And the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. More a number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal must I now restore? O oh God, You know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me. O Lord God of hosts, let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me, And the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. I'm the talk of those who sit in the gate, and the drunkards make songs about me. So we see, to begin with, David's first problem in verses 1 through 3, this first danger is the danger of impending death. And you see this with these pictures of flooding and drowning that David uses. Right? One of the reasons I had Pastor Jew read from Jonah is that Jonah uses some of David's own imagery to describe where he literally is in the belly of a fish, that he's gone down to the depths of Sheol. Well, David here is speaking metaphorically, but he's still speaking with this, with this urgent sense that his death is imminent. So if you look at the 
uh, second part of verse 1 where he says, the waters have come up to my neck. If you were to translate that literally or woodenly, we would read it, the waters have come to my soul. The waters are coming for my life. He speaks of this drowning in kind of a mixed metaphor. He's both sinking in the mire, he's drowning, and there's a flood sweeping over him. There's like a tidal wave coming for him. He's clearly alive enough to offer this prayer, but he has a sense that he's running out of time. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. He's running out of energy and stamina for this suffering. Now, we're not told in the, in the context of the psalm when David wrote this. We can imagine perhaps when he's on the run from Saul and his life is in danger, or maybe later when he's on the run from Absalom and he's been sort of publicly disgraced. But whatever the case, he's clearly in extreme distress. He believes he's in danger of dying and that his time is short. And in these first 12 verses, besides the very beginning line, Save me, O God, David doesn't seem to have any hope of deliverance. He's simply overwhelmed. His sense is that I'm about to die. My time is short. Verse 4 tells us that his time is not short because of some illness or natural disaster. Rather, David says the reason for his danger is because of his numerous enemies, more in number than the hairs on his head. And these innumerable enemies, it says in verse 4, are mighty. And they are those who would destroy him. So this is problem number one for David. His death is imminent. There are people out to get him. At any moment, his enemies might catch him. So if problem number one is an imminent death, problem number two is disgrace. We see him begin to talk about this in verse 6, and then he goes on to expand on it in verses 7 and 8. He says, For it is for your sake, talking to the Lord, that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers and alien to my mother's sons. Just look, look at that image, right? He's saying he's covered with disgrace, and he uses an image of a, of a person that's been, become so badly disfigured that is, his closest kin no longer recognize him. So that's, that's how disgraced David has become. He's unrecognizable in this shame and dishonor that has come upon him. Now the good news here is that he's, he's convicted that he's suffering for, for God's sake, for doing good. But whatever is happening to him, it's, it's totally devastating. He says in verse 12 that I am the talk of those who sit in the gate and the drunkards make songs about me. So if you recall anything from kind of Old Testament culture, you know the city gates are the place of official business, right? It's the city gates where you go to, to exchange property. You know, when, when Ruth and Boaz's case, I think they come to the city gate, right, to, to deal with Ruth's case. City gates are official. David's shame extends from the public official realm, the city magistrates, all the way down to the town drunks. He's embarrassment in all of their eyes. They're all wagging their tongues about him. If we were to try to imagine ourselves in a scenario like this, we'd have to imagine something like being indicted for a serious crime. 
We have to imagine our, ourselves appearing on the nightly news, doing the perp walk, right? Where the police are leading you into the station and you're bowing your head, trying to keep your, your face off the camera. Something disgraceful. And at the same time, once you make bail, you're out again and you start calling around, telling your friends, hey, you, you probably heard this about me, and no one's even answering the calls, right? That couple that you went out to dinner with on Friday night, they, they don't want to have anything to do with you. You, you, know, you see your friend at the gym and she just turns the other way. You're a complete disgrace. Maybe some of the people in your church are privately wondering, well, did he really do something shameful that we, we didn't know about? That's the kind of complete and utter disgrace David's talking about. Reproach and dishonor, he calls it. That's David's second problem, disgrace. And he says this is also coming from his enemies. Again, verse 4 says, They hate him without a cause, and they attack him with lies. They expect him to repay what he did not steal. Right? He's, he's guilty as charged. He's been tried in the court of public opinion, and there's no doubt he's, he's disgraced. He even says that when he humbles himself, and he is repentant. Even then, they take that as evidence and, and mock him further. So he says in verse 10, When I wept and humbled with my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. Even as he puts on sackcloth and ashes, he's further mocked. His acts of devotion to God are mocked and appear disgraceful. There's no kind of damage control he can do. There's no way out of this for David. No escaping this disgrace. And can you imagine that kind of humiliation? These, these kinds of things, death and disgrace, I think these are the great threats and dangers that haunt the persecuted. I recently heard a couple of interviews with some pastors from Afghanistan who had been actively evangelizing and pastoring churches in Afghanistan. But when the Taliban took over in 2021, they they had to quickly try to leave the country because they were publicly known as Christians. They had gone, gone so far to officially register with the Afghan government on their, their digital ID cards and switch their religion from Muslim to Christian, which had previously been impossible and was kind of unheard of. So they were, they were outed. When the Taliban got control, they would be easily known and identified as Christians. And so once they heard the Taliban is on the way, they had to leave their homes with a couple of backpacks with their wives and families and, and go on the run. And they, they, they talked about how they couldn't stay in any place very long. They talked about the, the trial of, of knowing they had homes and they had beds, but they, they couldn't go there. They couldn't sleep there. They didn't know at any point would they be turned in by someone that they had shared the gospel with. They were in danger of death. They were pariahs in their own country. By God's grace, they did eventually escape. But they faced these same dangers that David expresses, the dangers of death and disgrace. Now, in one sense, it's impossible to prepare for those things, right? I mean, no amount of, no amount of prepping that you do and storing up things in your house is going to help you in something of that kind of extreme case. But there's another sense in which preparing for these times is what the Christian life and life with God is all about. I think we see, even in David's case, in these relatively hopeless verses, things that David did or things that marked David 
that showed that he had prepared well for these times. And the first thing that David did and that we can do to prepare was to be humble. Notice verse 5. He says, O God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. So as David is clear in other parts of the psalm that he is suffering for God's sake, he's also not claiming perfect righteousness. He's admitting, the Lord, you, you know the evil I've done. I think in this case he's saying, you, you know the evil I've done doesn't corresponding with these accusations. You know I'm not guilty of all these shameful charges. But he is confessing his own sinfulness before the Lord. Later in the psalm in verse 16, he'll appeal to the abundant mercy and grace of God. So while convinced that the main accusations against him are false, and that he is suffering for the Lord's sake, that conviction does not keep him from acknowledging his sin. David recognizes this persecution as both being unfair and part of the Lord's plan for his growth, part of the Lord's fatherly discipline. You see how that can be the case? Something can be unjust and for your good. God can work through it to bring you to a greater awareness of sin and a greater joy in the gospel. This was both from evil men and from David's loving father. The unjust persecution is part of God's fatherly discipline. And so David humbles his soul. He does put on sackcloth and ashes. He, he repents, even though, the, even though that brings him open to further accusations. I want to suggest that we, we prepare for persecution the same way, by putting on this same humility. You know, when, when trouble comes, we're often a little bit paranoid to say, did I do something to deserve this? And I'm not claiming that you, you did. And I don't think David is saying that we should, we should always think we've done something to deserve this specific thing. But that when trouble comes, we can receive it as God's fatherly discipline. That we reflect on what God might be teaching us, on where God might be weaning us off the things in this world that we're addicted to and, and calling us to repentance and a fresh appreciation of the grace of the gospel. We can understand that even in the trouble, even in unjust trouble, that God loves us, that he's working in our lives. He's drawing our attention to our sin and our weakness and calling us to turn to him. So prepare for persecution by pursuing humility. A second way that we see David is prepared for persecution is that he's devoted himself to the worship of God. He was living for God's sake. Look at verse 9. He says, For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproached you have fallen on me. David is so completely committed to the worship of God, the house of God, and so closely identified with the Lord that those who hated God hated David. And David willingly bore their reproaches. He's, he doesn't want to be in this place, but... He's happy to suffer for God's sake, to bear the reproaches that come from being devoted to God. So he could endure severe persecution because he knew that he was suffering for doing good. Right? Isn't that what we read, uh, Randy read for us from 1 Peter, right? That we should suffer for doing good, and then we do, when we do, we're crowned with Christ's glory and honor. 
We prepare for suffering by being devoted to the worship of God, by being zealous for God's house. What does that look like for a Christian to be zealous for God's house? There's no temple in Jerusalem for us to be devoted to. But our zeal today is oriented towards Christ himself, towards the gospel, and towards the spiritual house that Christ created by his work. So we pursue this zeal for worship, first by faith in the gospel ourselves, by by meditating on the gospel, by trusting in it, by rejoicing in it. We pursue this zeal for worship by loving God's house, the church. So we can prepare for persecution now by loving and serving those whom Christ loves and serves, by loving and serving Christ's people. Love and serve your brothers and sisters here in the church. Are you zealous for God's house? Is your life consumed by a zeal for the gospel? If not, what's distracting you from that kind of zeal? Prepare for persecution by devoting yourself to the gospel. So those are David's two dangers, imminent death and disgrace. There's a third way that David prepares for persecution, and that is by prayer. Right? That's one of the gracious evidences kind of underneath the surface of these first 12 verses. This is a prayer. David is crying out to God, and there's a sign of faith in that alone. And that's where David moves to next in the psalm. After he's kind of stated his complaint, he explicitly moves to start making requests to God. And so let's pick up reading in verses 13 through 18, where we see David's first prayer to God. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, at an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. Deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies, from the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me, or the deep swallow me up, or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. Hide not your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Make haste to answer me. Draw near to my soul. Redeem me. Ransom ransom me because of my enemies. I think this first prayer is specifically related to that first problem that we identify, David's impending death. Did you notice how much of the flood and water imagery reappears here? It's almost the same collection of phrases. So he prays for deliverance from sinking, prays for deliverance from from this overwhelming flood, and he prays for deliverance from the pit, this symbol of destruction that's closing its mouth around him. And the, the, the sign of hope here is that in the first statement of the complaint, David doesn't seem to even envision that deliverance is possible. But now he's saying, let not this happen, O Lord. Let not this happen. He appeals and believes, you can deliver me from the trouble that I'm facing. So he turns in the face of death to God. He turns to the steadfast love and grace of God. You notice how twice in these verses he mentions the steadfast love of God. So verses 13 and 16, they kind of bracket David's recounting of the flood imagery. 
And in both 13 and 16, we have appeals to the abundant, steadfast love of God. And then in verse 13, he adds on to it the abundant mercy of God. He says, God in his steadfast love and abundant mercy is good. And then he closes this part of the prayer with this rapid fire series of requests. Draw near, redeem, ransom me. It's notable that in calling out for deliverance, he doesn't explicitly say, you know, keep me from dying. Although I think that's there. His focus is much more on the redeeming grace and presence of God. Right? The core is, hide not your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Don't turn your favor away from me, but draw near to me. David is showing persecuted people, people who are facing death, that we can face death with confidence because of the saving grace of God. David doesn't articulate what we would call a full kind of New Testament gospel presentation here, but just look at the words he uses. He comes almost as close as you can come, right? Words like ransom and redeem, draw near, but these are all words that can ultimately find their fulfillment in Christ himself. Right, as Christians, what do we profess? That we have been ransomed by Christ serving us, by laying down his life for us. We confess that we have been redeemed, purchased by the blood of Christ. That God has drawn near to us. That Jesus is our Emmanuel God's face has shone upon us in love through Jesus Christ. In the face of death, facing the danger of imminent death, David teaches us to pray the gospel. There are many good and important things to pray about, but this is the most important topic of prayer. Do you regularly pray the gospel? Well, what do I mean by pray the gospel? That's kind of a weird expression. I mean, do what David does. First, praise God for his loving and faithful salvation. Just praise him. He is my loving, my steadfast, my faithful Savior. We set aside time in each of our services to have a prayer of adoration. And we try to develop that discipline just because it's good just to gaze at God. But if if you kind of poke those prayers... Gospel comes out of all of them, right? We're praising God because of his gospel work, because of the the way his goodness is revealed to us in Jesus. So when you think about devotions, your daily time of worship and reading, do you think about praising God for his saving love as an essential part of that time of your day? I hope that you do. We also pray the gospel by confessing our sins. We we come to God and we confess like we do in our service of the Lord's Supper and tell him the ways that we've sinned against him. Just as David, he admits his follies. He says, God, you know my foolishness, the way I've sinned against you. We pray those things to God and we rejoice that Jesus bore those burdens on himself, that he paid the price of those sins on the cross. We fellowship with God around confessing sin and receiving forgiveness by faith in Jesus. And we can pray the gospel by thanking the Lord for the gospel blessings that we have. 
That because of Jesus' work, we can call God Father. That we can know that all things work together for good. That we can know that nothing can separate us from God's love. That we have eternal life. We thank God for gospel blessings. Even in the way you approach your prayer requests, you can do so consciously remembering I can ask things of my Father in heaven because only the gospel, right? Because Jesus died so that I could be adopted into God's family. So even in just praying for your daily bread, you you can pray that in a way that reminds you of the gospel, that God is your good Father, that he is near to you in Christ. A life spent meditating on the gospel in prayer is a life prepared to face death. For Christ. The gospel gives us hope in the face of death. But I also want you to notice this hope and this prayer isn't an especially victorious sounding prayer. Right? There was a there's a, a church in our area and they're in the Champion Forest area and they had a flyer that I used to get at my house because we lived near there and it said, Discover the champion in you was one of their taglines. That's not David's prayer here, right? We're not discovering the champion in me. At the core of this prayer, David says, I am in distress. Right? He just lays it out there. Lord, I am distressed. I feel like I'm drowning. And we, we don't get a happy ending where David says, I don't feel that way anymore. Everything's okay now. In the midst of praying the gospel, he says, I am in distress. I hope that that frees you to say your prayers can be as honest as David's can. You can pray that to the Lord. We don't have to dress our prayers up to God. We can say, honestly, I am overwhelmed. I feel like my endurance is running out. I don't know how I can go on. You notice that David prays in this prayer, both in verse 13, that God would deliver him at an appropriate time, And then in verse 17, he prays to the Lord, make haste to answer me. Both are good and legitimate ways to pray. One way he says, Lord, your timing is perfect and I trust you. You have me right where you want me. And another way he prays, Lord, don't delay. Don't be slow in answering because I'm exhausted. David suffered well by praying for deliverance. And we can do the same. Pray the gospel back to God. So that's David's first prayer. His second prayer is quite a bit different. We'll see that in verses 19 through 29. If we think about those two problems of David, the two dangers, right? Imminent death and disgrace. I think that first prayer is more about addressing imminent death. It's a prayer for deliverance. This second prayer is more addressing that second issue, disgrace. So let's read in verse 19 and notice how he brings up again reproach and dishonor. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food. And for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Let their own table Before them become a snare. And when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them and let your burning anger overtake them. 
May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents. For they persecute him whom you have struck down, and they recount the pain of those you have wounded. Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. But I am afflicted in pain. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. Again, notice how he comes back to this topic of reproach and dishonor. And he recounts again how his enemies have kicked him while he was down. Right? He's looking for comfort, and they give him sour wine and poisonous food. Even those things that should become nourishing become poisonous to him. And so what does David pray in the face of such disgrace? We find this series of curses. The curses begin with kind of more lighter fare. You know, let their table become a snare. It's kind of what they were doing to him, right? He since if, if, if this is in any way literal, that they're really poisoning his food, or at least he thinks they are, he's now asking that same thing to happen to them. Let their food be poisoned, right? When they sit down to eat, may it be a danger to them. He prays that they would live in terror, that there can't be desolate. But then, as it goes on, the prayer grows even more extreme and intense. Verse 27 May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. He must be talking about fellow Israelites, right? And he's praying to God for their damnation. That when they stand before God, they would not be acquitted. So he responds to his disgrace by praying for the condemnation of those who have dishonored him. Is this just David being petty, you know, looking for revenge? We can't know all that's in David's heart. But notice that at the heart of this series of curses is verse 26. For they persecute him whom you have struck down, and they recount the pain of those you have wounded. David brings the Lord into this, right? And he says to the Lord, you know, you're doing some work here. You're striking some people down. You're, you're wounding some people. And yet these others are piling on. I think what he's doing here is he's accusing his enemies of sort of, of meddling in God's work. They're presuming to take God's role as judge and they're ridiculing the people who were under God's fatherly discipline. Right? We know that, that David had that promise as a king that God would be a father to him, that he would discipline him as a son. And so now these enemies of David are witnessing his being under this discipline and they're choosing to, to take the offensive at that moment when David is weak to say, you deserve it, David. Something perhaps even worse than what Job's friends did. They're prosecuting David. Remember, David has already proclaimed himself to be one who is consumed by zeal for God's house. And so these enemies that he pronounces these curses upon, that's who they're persecuting. The one who's full of zeal for God's house, and yet who's been brought low. I think we see the same dynamic here that we see in the prophets. So if you, if you read Isaiah, you'll see that God uses countries like Assyria to judge Israel. But then Assyria grows proud 
You know, they think, well, we're just getting to do this because we're awesome and we're better than Israel. And then God eventually sends the prophet to Assyria to pronounce judgment upon them. Basically say, you were just a tool in my hand and you've become proud. And God's judgment falls on those proud nations. I think that's exactly what's happening here. These opponents of the Lord's anointed are being judged and cursed because of the way they've opposed and persecuted the Lord's anointed. Because of the way they've opposed and persecuted the one who is zealous for God's house. They are going to reap what they sow. And so in a sense, David is right. This is what those who persecute the Lord's anointed deserve. They deserve to be cut off. They deserve in that last day not to be acquitted, to be blotted out. Something we all need to wrestle with if we oppose the Lord's anointed, if we oppose Christ, or if we persecute Christ's people. I think that's often how sin is more exposed. Not just what do you think of Jesus? Many people can have a positive answer to that, but what do you think of Jesus' people and how do you treat them? If you're guilty even secretly of rejoicing to see God's people taken down a notch, there's a pride in your heart that's condemning you before God. And without the saving work of Christ, you will stand before God guilty and not be acquitted. But if you're hearing this today, there remains a hope that you can be forgiven by faith in Christ. You can receive forgiveness. This raises the big question that the sermon title asks. Should we curse our enemies the way David did? It's tempting to to think, well, there are certain extreme cases where we should do this, perhaps, you know, where there's really clear injustice or evil. I want to submit to you that there's a pretty short answer to that question, and the answer is no. And I can give you first a very short reason why. Because Jesus says we're not to curse them. Because Jesus calls us to pray for our enemies and bless those who persecute us. So just a real quick Bible answer. Jesus forbids us from David's path. But I think there's an even deeper answer. And that that is the reason, that's because Jesus took the curses that David pronounces on himself. Jesus bore these curses Jesus, on the cross, died for those who rebel against God and his anointed one. So the difference between David and us is Jesus stands there in the middle. Jesus is the one who died in the place of sinners. And so, in Christ, we might oppose evildoers. We might rightly pray for their works to be thwarted. But we can never go as far as David did and say, Lord, make them utterly condemned. Right? We, we pray for them to be thwarted, and yet we also hope for their repentance. By God's grace, in the New Testament, we see a persecutor of Christ repent and become the great apostle Paul. Right? We have hope for those who curse the Lord and his anointed one. And so we don't finally pray for the condemnation of our enemies. 
uh, for them to be cursed. We pray for their repentance because we stand on this side of Jesus. I found the uh, theologian or commentator Derek Kidner very helpful. He said, as we read through this psalm, we see lots of places where this psalm is directly applied to Jesus. So a lot of these verses that we've read, the gospel writers pick up on and Paul picks up on and say, this is about Jesus. Paul says in Romans 15 that the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me is about Jesus and his willing suffering. We see Jesus is the one who is hated without a cause. We see Jesus as the one who was given sour wine to drink, right? Over and over again, the New Testament applies this psalm to Jesus. And it says that in the place where David says, curse my enemies and condemn them, Jesus says, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. Jesus died for his enemies. Jesus died for the ones David cursed. So that is why I don't think we can curse our enemies in exactly the same way David did. And that brings us to the final section of this psalm, the end of the persecuted. Let's read beginning in verse 30. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hooves. When the humble see it, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. <coughs> For God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah, and people shall dwell there and possess it. The offspring of his servants shall inherit it, and those who love his name shall dwell in it. It's a pretty abrupt change that we see here. But I want you to note how it springs from the end of that prayer we just looked at. So the last verse, I kind of skimmed over it, was verse 29. I am afflicted and in pain. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. So what David's praying there, even as he's cursing his enemies, what he's ultimately after is his own exaltation. Not in a vain sense, but in a sense that vindicates his righteousness. So he ends this prayer of condemnation with this this final prayer of, of exaltation, with hope that the Lord will vindicate him. And that's what leads him into this praise, this song of praise, where he is confident that the Lord will save him. He's confident so much so that he can now in the present, even as he's in the midst of this pain, in the midst of this distress, right? He says, I'm afflicted and in pain, yet I will praise God and I will thank him. And he makes this contrast that we looked at a few weeks ago in Psalm 50. These praises and thanks that the redeemed offer, these are better than the offerings of bulls, right? What does God need with bulls? He delights in the praises and thanks of his redeemed, exalted people. He delights in them when they praise him. And then David says that as he praises the Lord, others will see it and they will be glad. I want you to notice that there's a a contrast here between something that he sort of expresses anxiety about earlier in the psalm. In Psalm, uh, in verse 6, he says, Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord God of hosts. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. So initially, when he's overwhelmed, he's he's concerned that he will be kind of a, 
a, a weight around the neck to God's people. But now he has this confidence that he will be exalted. And he has a confidence that as the humble see it, they will see his exaltation and they will be glad. Their hearts will be revived. They will be strengthened. They will not be discouraged. And so he calls heaven and earth to praise him. But notice verse 32. I'm sorry, verse 33. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. So what does God offer to us in our persecution? This reminder. The Lord hears you. In your need, in your imprisonment, in your threat of death, in your shame, the Lord hears you. And the Lord has an end for you. God will save Zion. He will build up the cities of Judah, and the people shall dwell there and possess it. The offspring of his servants shall inherit it, and those who love his name shall dwell in it. Do you hear the finality of those words? They will possess it. Their offspring will inherit it. They will dwell in it. They will enjoy the blessings of being in God's exalted presence forever. And so how do we bear up under persecution? We know that now the Lord hears us. He is near to us in our distress. And we can cry out to him and say, I am in pain, O Lord, answer me. And we can look to our end. We will be with the Lord forever. We will dwell in his presence securely. And nothing can separate us from his love. That is how we prepare for persecution. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this difficult psalm in many ways. Thank you that you include things like this in the scriptures where David pours out his heart to you. Father, I pray you would help us to learn this language of prayer. Help us to learn how to be honest and to just bring our distress before you and lay it out to you. And help us in that honesty to profess faith in you, to trust that you are near to us. Help us, Father, to esteem the honor and exaltation that we have in Christ more than we esteem the things of this world and the honor and reputation that our co-workers or classmates might give us. We pray, Father, that you would help us to endure, that we would look to you in hope, that we would know our end is with you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.